really good to be back uh, preaching. I uh, had a few weeks off. Um, graciously, God decided that would be when my vocal cords went out. So uh, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, I am a little, little strained, but uh, no worries. Uh, Gabe Brodell has me on a strict regimen of high levels of tea, honey, lime, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it is good to be back with you. If you're here as a visitor, welcome uh, again. My name's Adam. I'm the lead pastor. I do most of the preaching and teaching up here, but um, thankful for the many in our church that are very gifted at opening God's Word. So thank you uh, both James and Tito for the past two weeks of uh, preaching uh, for us. Yeah, thank you. Um, so uh, today we are actually beginning a, a brand new sermon series. So if you received a bulletin, you'll see our uh, design and title there. Uh, we are going to be working our way uh, through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Um, if you're new to the Bible, um, the book of Exodus is uh, right at the beginning, so it's, it's the second book in the Bible, so Genesis, then Exodus. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to begin turning there to chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words projected for you, so, um, so don't worry about that. Um, I've called this series... Uh, rescued to rejoice um, for a variety of reasons. Um, if you're familiar with Exodus, um, you'll know it's this book um, that is just just chock full of these extraordinary examples of God uh, delivering His people over and over again um, from extreme circumstances. And um, we actually, we're going to take this series kind of in two parts. So we're going to look at chapters 1 all the way through chapter 15 over the next several, several months, actually. Um, and then we're going to pause um, and do some, do some other work at the end of the year, and then we're going to come back to it at another time. But in chapter 15, just so you know where we're headed, a bit of a spo- spoiler alert, um, the, uh, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt and God is part of the Red Sea, and chapter 15 is the song of uh, rejoicing over salvation. So uh, chapter 15 kind of marks that transition from life in Egypt to now life in the wilderness. Um, you'll discover, if this is a new story to you, you'll discover this as we come along. But uh, for the Israelites, uh, for the ancient Jewish people, uh, the book of Exodus uh, was the book that defined their very existence. Uh, for, the, for the Christian today... Uh, the book serves, um, perhaps it may feel like in a lesser significant fashion, but, but, but it ought to serve as kind of the, um, the, almost the climactic example of the gospel in the Old Testament. The good news of God rescuing and redeeming His people and bringing them into a relationship with Himself. And so... Um, we're going we're gonna to look this morning just kind of at that opening section in verses 1 to 7. Um, and, and, you know, if you're new to the Bible, I, I never make assumptions. We've got a wide cast and variety of people here. If you're new to the Bible, as we read through some of these sections, um, you might be skeptical. Like, did, did a bush really burn uh, without being consumed? Did God really part the sea? Did bread really fall from heaven? And you begin to kind of question some of the miraculous nature of these things. In fact, I, I read one um, scholarly academic work um, that said this um, when commenting on the historical nature of this book in the Bible. Uh, the commentator says that the actual evidence concerning the Exodus resembles the evidence for the unicorn. Um, that was his level of belief in the book. Um, and and it, 
in this series, I'm going to kind of sprinkle in introductory things about the book. I'm not going to handle it all up front here today. But, but let me just make this very clear. Um, this book, what we have as Bible-believing Christians, we believe is a historical account of real activity of God in real history. Like we really believe these events happened. And um, there's, there's reasons to believe that, not just because we want to believe willy-nilly, um, but the reality is that this book tells of the greater, larger story of the God who has both the power and the ability to rescue his people from anything. And this book really is about the one Redeemer who would come and he would rescue his people from all of their enslavement. This book is about Jesus. And so as we look at this together over the next several weeks and months, um, I hope you walk away with a greater sense of both your need for and the ability of Jesus to rescue you. Let's read the opening verses of Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to go down through verse 7 this morning. This is the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we need your help to both see and understand your word. We pray that you would do that. We, we want to hear from you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, article popped up in my flipboard this week, um, New York Times article uh, titled, Tom Brady's Midlife Crisis. Um, you know there had to be a Brady reference uh, coming into the playoff weekend. Um, but th- in this article, um, they're talking about how there's this documentary coming out about Tom Brady. Uh, and if you know little nothing about sports, you've probably at least heard the name. But, but Tom Brady is, he's a specimen. I mean, he is a unique performer. Um, there, are, there are few that are like him and that take his craft as seriously as he does. Um, as far as off the field, preparation, uh, high levels of nutrition, uh, and he's been extremely, extraordinarily successful in his craft of, of football. Um, and in this article, uh, they pulled out a quote from the documentary. I don't think the documentary's out yet. Uh, the documentary is called Tom versus Time, and they're talking about um, kind of the, the, the not not just the lifespan of his career, which perhaps may be coming to an end. Uh, but, but really um, how he views his craft, his trade, um, as the center of everything that he does. They pulled this little quote out of the documentary, and this is Tom Brady speaking. He says this. He says, I do want to know the whys in life. I want to know why we're here and where we're going, trying to find that deeper purpose, but to live it through sports in a very authentic way 
makes so much sense to me. Um, that statement right there at the end. To, to live life through sports and to find his deeper purpose and meaning through that is the grid that Tom Brady runs everything through, right? Now, now you and I, we have different grids and filters that we use. Um, common ones, you know, we, we filter and grid our life through work or through our family or through romantic adventures or travel or hobbies, uh, you know, lower scale uh, than Tom Brady. Uh, but we all have a grid that we're working from that helps us both process why we're here and where we're headed. But another grid that you and I perhaps even subconsciously run everything through our lives is negative grids. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna make some I'm gonna throw some statistics out here, and um, I think in a in a room this size with this many people in it, um, we land in these statistics. Um, there are 39 million victims of childhood abuse currently living. Uh, 16% of boys and 25% of girls um, have been abused in their childhood, physically or sexually. And um, I, I say those statements knowing that, that we are in this room. Um, but I say those statements because abuse at the hands of another is a grid that sends shocking waves of anguish and fear and anger and rage and temptations into a person's life. Um, some more statistics, different category. Uh, 70% of men ages 18 through 34 visit a pornographic website every month. 28% uh, of self-admitted sexual addicts are women. And 18 million Americans meet the diagnostic criteria for alcohol abuse. So these are people, us, who have experienced defeat at crushing levels and feel enslaved and bound to their sinfulness. Uh, maybe, maybe I haven't hit you in one of those stats, um, if I've missed you so far. Maybe you are kind of just in the garden variety of assorted struggles um, like anger or deep-seated laziness or envy or greed or whatever it is that has a grip on you. You might not call it addiction per se, but it has a hold of you. All of these things I've mentioned, as hurtful and harmful as they are to many of us, can be the very grid that we run our entire lives through, and most of us do it subconsciously. You see, what happens when these kind of things, abuse or addiction or patterns of foolishness in our lives, when these things become the grid of our existence, God's promises become very distant to us and really become irrelevant at some point. Um, we begin to ask questions like, how can God keep a promise to someone like me? How could God do something good for somebody as damaged as I am, who does the things that I do? See, 
the Israelites are now in Egypt, and they were beginning to feel this very tension. Um, if you know the history of the Israelite people, uh, fast forward down the line, and there's a number of occurrences where they are just unable to obey God. Uh, they are uh, you know, disobedient and rebellious at every rounding corner, and God punishes them. He exiles them from the land, and they, they continue to experience this this, um, you know, this life of disobedience with God with consequences that follow. But here, there seems to be none of that. Um, God's people have found themselves in Egypt because God has placed them there um, for no other reason. Here's, here's the big idea I want us to see as we kind of walk through this opening section of, Gen- of Exodus. I want us to see, and I want you to believe today, That God's promises can be trusted even when they can't be seen, felt, or experienced in your life. Okay? So God's promises can be trusted even when they cannot be seen, felt, or experienced in your own life. Okay? Two things I want us to pull out of this passage. I want us just to look at um, verses 1 to 5. I want us to look at remembering the promise. And then secondly, I want us to look at believing the promise. So, remembering the promise in verses 1 through 5. Um, the sickness in our home for the past couple of weeks has, has lent us to spend a little bit more time on Netflix than usual. Um, we discovered several um, Netflix original series. Um, the most recent of we're watching currently is The Crown. Some of you have seen The Crown, maybe? See a couple nods? Uh, the Crown tells the saga of the royal family. Um, and... I don't know about you, but I've never felt so American by watching that show. (laughs) Like, I mean, I know I am an American who doesn't understand the royal family, but watching that show, it's like tracking the the people and the lines and the name. It's just it's this deep saga, Um, and it reminds me a lot of of kind of the Old Testament, right? It's it's the storyline of a family um, that that God is working through. Um, a storyline of, uh, of one man, namely Abraham, whom God made a promise to. Uh, James set this up just eloquently for us last week. Uh, I, I couldn't have handpicked a better passage for us to use as a platform to walk into Exodus. But, but, but this is the sequel, the much-anticipated sequel to the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, Exodus starts with the very word, end which is not common in Hebrew literature. It starts with the word end, suggesting this is the sequel you've been looking for. So it's Genesis and now Exodus. Um, Let me just do a little bit of of recap for you. Um, How how did they get to Egypt? How did the Israelites land here? Let's, Let's just quickly pick up where James left off last week. Genesis chapter 15, God makes one promise to one man, Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation that will be a blessing to the world. So God makes this promise. He says that I'm going to give you a son. His son's name would later be Isaac. So Isaac is the promised son whom God said, I will bring this promise to fruition through. Isaac then bears another son. His name is Jacob. You're familiar with Jacob and Esau, the twins in the womb fighting from the beginning. So Jacob and Esau represent two nations. 
Uh, Esau would later go on and he would uh, marry Canaanite women, so he would go outside of Israel uh, and they would later be the, the Moabites. And now we've got uh, uh, Isaac and his son Jacob is now the promised seed. Uh, Jacob has his life threatened because of stealing the blessing from his older brother Esau. Remember that with the stew, the soup? <laughs> Uh, so Jacob is now the promised one. He flees danger to go to his uncle Laban's house. When, at his uncle Laban's house, he finds beautiful Rachel. He gets conned into marrying not-so-beautiful Leah first. So he's got these two wives. Uh, Leah, uh, Rachel struggles to have children. Finally, they give, she gets a son. Jacob has, ends up having 12 sons where the 12 twi- tribes of Israel come. Okay? So in Genesis chapter 37, the storyline begins to follow one of the sons, and his name is Joseph. And Joseph is the one who, he's the, the kind of the, he's, he's not quite the middle child, he's not going to be the youngest, he's the second to youngest child, and his, his brothers have had enough of him. He's had these dreams of them bowing down to him, and so they throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. Remember this one? So the Egyptians... This is Egyptians now. Here's where Egypt ties in. The Egyptians get this man, take him into slavery, and Joseph rises to influence and power in Egypt. So God takes this, this son, this cast-out son, and brings him to a foreign land and gives him influence and power. Uh, mixed into that influence and power is much pain, but they land themselves, or Joseph lands himself in Egypt, and his family, not in Egypt, comes to Egypt because there's a famine striking the land. And oh so conveniently, they have influence there already. So God preserves this family by bringing them all to Egypt. There's a whole reconciliation, you know, they have a, a whole intervention with each other and they work out their, their differences and Joseph brings in the family and they plant the family in the land of Goshen. And the land of Goshen was the fertile land. It was the land where things happened. And so God places his people in this fertile land. And in Genesis chapter 50, Jacob dies and Joseph dies. Okay? So what they're seeing is God's promise begins unfolding before their very eyes. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, let me remind you from last week, This is what God would say. He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 430 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God's people begin to see God's promises unfolding slowly. So here they are in Egypt. And um, now the gap between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 1 is long. It's probably centuries. This isn't, this isn't like the, the following week. There's many, many years. In fact, the text says that Joseph has already died and all of his brothers of that generation have died. And so all of the people that are now in Egypt were born in Egypt. It's all they've ever known. The paganism, uh, the, the entire philosophical system, 
you know, their work life, their labor, which we'll deal with next week, their oppression. It's all they've ever known. And you begin to ask, I mean, we ought to begin to ask ourselves, what would that have done to their perspective on the promise that God had made to them? I mean, I mean the, the dark scenario that they find themselves in, slavery in Egypt, begins to really dim that bright promise that God had already extended to them. It begins to fade, and they begin to forget it. Um, that's what our grids do, right? Prior abuse, undeserved, unjust, um, a poor childhood, um, failed relationships, one after another. Uh, or maybe, maybe it's not really those kind of dark clouds. Maybe it's just kind of that fog in your present, um, you know, just the daily grind of work, same old, every day, same drive that you black out on and you get there unknowingly. Um, maybe it's just the monotony of parenting young children. Um, I can't be the only one that is tired of picking up the same toys every day. Right, like this is kind of that monotony. It just begins to kind of just wear on you a little bit. Um, maybe it's just living in, in Albuquerque. Maybe you grew up here and, and you're tired of all the, the crime stories and the reputation, poor education system, and the, kind of that narrative has begun just wearing on you and you begin to be thinking about where the grass is greener and you know how this, this place isn't for you. Or, or, or maybe you're even thinking, you're forward thinking, and you're looking and you're saying, you know, I have no ladder to climb career-wise, like I'm already at the top of that. Um, I've got no real promising romances on my horizon. Uh, I've got no financial prospect to, to kind of make a ton of money. And you begin to think about kind of what the future holds, and it just, it's just foggy, or maybe it's even just dark. And um, that had to be what they were feeling. It had to be. And God wanted them to remember the promise because the promise was grounded on God's goodness to them and not their own. And so, I mean, that's really, I just want you to feel what the Israelites were feeling. Uncertainty, doubt, unclarity about how these things would work themselves out, darkness, fog, that's what they were feeling, and God was calling them to remember the promise. Well, let's look at what it looked like to believe the promise, then, in the, in the kind of the closing two verses there. Um, our oldest son, uh, Jaden, seven, almost eight, has an uncanny memory, like this kid remembers things. It's, it's incredible, quite honestly. Um, he will remember uh, something that we did. Maybe it's even like a, you know, a high-impact memory that we created for him when he was three years old. But he will remember like what we had for lunch that day. Like, remember, yeah, remember we had those cheese sticks you know, with the bread on the side? You know, like, he, will, he will unfold these things. And, and I have discovered that he, that's a great tool to me because I have a very poor memory. I have a very poor memory. And so I will, I will frequently, 
ask Jaden for details around something. Like if I'm trying to recall, you know, what we did or how that worked out, or do you remember when we went to that place or what was it called? I'll, I'll even ask him to remember your name sometimes. Like he's got, he's like, he, he's, he's just got this, this really, this sixth sense of memory to him. And so I will use that to my advantage. He is my little pawn of memory. Like I'll, I'll use that and I have no shame at all in that, at all. Um, See, for, for the Israelites, um, the, the, the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph in Egypt, those were, for them, um, their reminders of the promise, right? Like, that was their constant physical reminder of, yes, God has worked this out. He's brought us here. He's still working. But now they're gone they're, you know, they're, they're no longer. Yes, their memory's there. Yes, the tradition is there. Um, but they're, they're no longer. And so, you know, I mentioned that the, the gap between the closing of Genesis and the opening of Exodus is rather long, probably centuries. You've got to imagine these people didn't know these forefathers. They didn't have that constant reminder. Uh, the passage says that they were 70 uh, at the end of verse 5, they were 70 persons. Um, most, most commentators on the passage think that that's kind of a broad number, just saying they were many. Um, they, had, they had a good bit of people. They had some movement going. Um, as you'll see in verse 7, it, it, it kind of it spurred up quickly. But um, everybody was born in Egypt. Egypt was all they knew around them. Right? That, that was what they knew. And without the physical reminders of the spiritual promise, believing the promise became very difficult for them. Um, don't, you know, I think we do this, I know we do this in the New Testament. Like we look at kind of these people and we're like, you're so silly. Like, look at all the things God has done. How could you not believe? Or, you know, you know we, we do this with the disciples a lot. Like, Oh, these, you know, these poor, you know, uneducated fishermen, like how could they, of course, they didn't understand the Messiah because, you know, they didn't know how to read or something. But, but like, I think we, we can do this and, and, and think, I don't need physical reminders. You know, like I'll, I know all of God's promises to me and I'll just believe them on my own. And let me tell you this, you need physical reminders of God's promises. You need them. And uh, the primary place uh, that God has put them um, is, is right where you are, right now. In the local church, this is the physical reminder of God's promises when you're living in Egypt. And listen, we're living in Egypt. Um, we are. And so, you know, the forms of r reminders that God gives us to help us to believe is... is Right here, the corporate gathering of his people. You, you and I need to be with other people who believe the promise. Like you need, you need to know that other people are believing in these extraordinary and outrageous claims that the Son of God has come to rescue us. And he's coming again. Uh, he's given us, of course, his written word. This is the constitution of the church, the thing we live and abide by. God has preserved this through the generations and centuries for us to be reminded of the promises we're to believe in. 
And then of utmost important, he's given us this. Um, you know, we, we come up to this table every Sunday because we need bread in our hands and in our mouth. And we need wine sliding down our throats. Like this isn't just some religious ritual we do to kind of walk through the motions of getting through a service. Like you need that reminder of the Son of God given for you, poured out for you. And so here, here's, here's where the Israelites are at this point. Um, they're questioning the promise. They're, they're doubtful at best. And the reason why is because um, death seems to have threatened it. Uh, the, the forefathers of the faith are gone. And they're in Egypt and they're oppressed, and um, things are not looking up until verse 7 happens. Um, if, if infertility was the problem in Genesis, which it was, um, uber-fertility was the problem for Egypt in Exodus. Right? They began multiplying, and they began being very fruitful. And um, God secures his promise um, and gives life through it, um, through the death of others. And so Joseph died, but God brought life through that. Uh, does that ring a bell of another son who would come into the darkness of a world gone wrong? He would plunge himself into Egypt, as it were, and he would walk faithfully and obediently on your behalf. And then he would crawl up on a wooden cross and be punished in the most excruciating, terrifying, tormenting way publicly. And then he would die, that he would be buried, he'd be hidden in the world. And then after his death was accepted by the Father, that he would be raised bodily from death to life. And that he would offer life to anyone who would believe in that one. The death of that one secures the promise for anyone who would believe. See, the original audience um, who read these words or heard these words read to them um, was actually not the audience I've described. Um, we believe Moses wrote this book. I believe Moses wrote this book, um, which means he probably wrote it as they were approaching the promised land. So years down the road, and he's writing it to an audience who has seen God do tremendous things on their behalf and who has made a promise to bring them into a land. And he's writing it to people who are both looking, which way's back for you guys, looking back to what God has done for them and also leaning forward to what he's promised to bring them to. And the audience that's here today reading and hearing these words is the very same audience. People who are post-cross looking back at the mighty things that God has done for them through Christ, but also leaning forward towards the future He has promised us. There's a song, I don't know that we've sung it, um, but let me, let me close with these words. It's called... On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. I'm going to read three stanzas and, and let's just make this the closing comments. 
And as, as I read them, I want you to be leaning forward to the future that God has promised us. It says, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? Let's pray together. Father, we fully admit that it is difficult for us to both remember, to see, and to believe your promise to us while living in Egypt. Lord, darkness consumes us. Fog fills us. Lord, we are doubtful, inclined to disbelieve and wonder. Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness, but Lord, we also thank you that you're a God who has not left us to our own devices to find you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself fully and finally in the work of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have given us life in him through his death. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would help us scatter through the fog and the darkness, Lord. That you would help us enter into a work we, believing the promises that you've made to us and treasuring your kindness that you extend to us. Lord, we pray that as we come now to the Lord's table, that as we take bread in our fingers and wine and we consume these things, that they would be deep and lasting reminders of your commitment to us, even when we can't see, feel, or experience it. Lord, we need your help. So would you make yourself known to us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.